It's officially summer here in North America, and that means one thing. It's starting to get hot. Here in Austin, Texas, we have already set some new record temperatures, and I'm looking at the forecast, and I'm seeing 102, 104, 103 degrees Fahrenheit. And as the mercury rises, I've been thinking about last year's horrific heat wave in the Pacific Northwest and Western Canada. A prolonged, dangerous, and historic heat wave engulfing Western Canada has already caused dozens of deaths. People are being encouraged to go to cooling centers to combat the extreme heat. Lytton, Canada, 121 degrees. That's higher than it's ever been in Europe or even South America. In Canada, shattering the national record by five degrees. And in Portland, shattering the um, all-time record in the city by nine degrees. Not just a daily record, but an all-time record. The week-long heat wave broke temperature records that were over a century old. And headlines were talking about this mega heat wave. And here's the thing. Heat waves are the deadliest weather event in the U.S. every year. They're deadlier than hurricanes, than tornadoes, than floods. And this heat wave was no exception. The oppressive heat waves now gripping our nation are not only hotter, but also deadlier. Even in the cool Pacific Northwest, temperatures soared up to 116 degrees in Portland this summer. Hundreds lost their lives. How did it go so tragically wrong? That's what the province and some cities are being asked as the death toll from the heat wave continues to rise. Washington state reported more than 1,300 emergency room visits for heat-related illnesses. In Canada, the Vancouver Police Department reported nearly 100 sudden deaths since Friday, the vast majority likely related to the heat. And while the exact toll of last year's heat wave in the Pacific Northwest is hard to count, the New York Times reported that there were more than 1,000 excess deaths across Washington, Oregon, and British Columbia. And a big determining factor in who died in this heat wave? Access to air conditioning. According to one report, most died alone in homes with no working air conditioning or fans. Shane Brown says it was 108 degrees when he found his mother, Jolene, inside her low-income housing unit. She used her social security to pay rent on an apartment that offered no AC. She's one of Oregon's 96 confirmed fatalities. The most extreme consequence of energy insecurity is death. This is Dr. Diana Hernandez. She's a professor at the Mailman School of Public Health at Columbia University, and she is a leading expert in this concept called energy insecurity. In other words, who gets access to things like air conditioning or heating, and who goes without? When public health uh, officials have gotten in to understand why uh, folks have died, it's mm -hmm. oftentimes because there wasn't an AC present, the AC was in the off position, the utilities were shut off. And as summers get hotter and hotter, energy insecurity can have life or death consequences. In the last few episodes, we've talked about what it's going to take to decarbonize our buildings. And this week, we're going to talk about how we can fight climate change and energy insecurity at the same time. This is The Big Switch, a show about how to rebuild the energy systems that are all around us. I'm Dr. Melissa Lott, and I'm the Director of Research at Columbia University's Center on Global Energy Policy. You might not have heard the term energy insecurity before, but you might have experienced it. Or you might know someone who has. 
According to the U.S. Energy Information Administration, about a third of American households are energy insecure. This means that they struggled to pay their energy bills, or they couldn't keep their house at a safe temperature because of energy costs. Energy insecurity disproportionately impacts low-income Black and Latino households. Over half of Black households in the U.S. and just under one-half of Latino households experienced energy insecurity in 2020. So you've written a lot about these concepts of energy insecurity and energy justice. For someone who's never heard these terms before, can you help us to explain what they are? What do they mean? So energy insecurity and energy justice are basically a problem and an approach to addressing a problem. Uh, So energy insecurity is uh, about the ways in which, um, you know, people have economic challenges um, in uh, paying for their utilities. They have physical challenges um, based on the kind of conditions of their home, um, the efficiency of uh, like the kind of building performance, and then um, the age uh, and performance of appliances, for instance. And uh, those physical conditions kind of um, sometimes drive up and often do drive, drive up um, economic costs. Um, and then there's a coping component. Um, so, you know, it's fair to say that when people are challenged physically or economically, that they uh, they do things um, and they cope um, in very specific and particular ways uh, that make sense for them. Uh, and, and sometimes that's a question of forbearance and, and foregoing. So, foregoing basic necessities like food um, and medicine in order to pay the utility bills or keeping homes in um, at kind of unhealthy and uncomfortable temperatures, either too hot or too cold, um, or doing other kind of um, things like leaving their homes in order to kind of reduce uh, the expenses. But ultimately, it's together uh, that you have the kind of economic, physical, and coping components coming together under the rubric of um, energy insecurity. This idea of energy insecurity, it's really important because we're up against a pretty huge problem, and that problem threatens lives. We said earlier that official estimates put one-third of U.S. households as being energy insecure. Already, that's a massive chunk of the population. But Dr. Hernandez thinks that it could be even more than that. So when we talk about energy insecurity in the U.S. today, how big of a problem is this and what are these root causes that are driving it? So I'll I'll answer that question simply um, by saying that kind of our best available estimates, um, especially in a non pandemic context um, is that at least one third of all households are energy insecure. And and I actually, like based on my read and a more theoretically based um, understanding of energy insecurity, which is kind of based on the fact that, you know, like there are people that have the economic challenges or have issues in their homes and they might not necessarily present with uh, some of the same financial uh, burdens. And then that some people are coping um, in these kind of adverse ways that I described. It's actually closer to about half of the population. Disproportionately, 
low-income households do experience these issues, but it's not exclusive to those households. So I think ultimately, um, you know, this is, again, uh, an issue of recognition and and raising awareness uh, about um, just how common this is um, and then helping people to see themselves um, as kind of fitting in a group. And, And it's a group that, you know, I think the whole point is to not stigmatize it um, because many of us, you know, experience parts uh, of this phenomenon. Um, You know, you could be a very wealthy homeowner and still have single pane windows um, and that could be a real pain in the butt, you know, like, and the whole point is that, um, you know, there are ways for us to be able to relate on a real human level. Okay. So energy insecurity is this big life or death problem that affects a lot of Americans, and it disproportionately affects the lowest income Americans and communities of color. But what can we do about it? That's where energy justice comes in. Energy justice is an approach to addressing um, a number of energy uh, concerns. There are kind of four central pillars to energy justice. Um, There's uh, procedural justice, distributional justice, recognition justice, and restorative justice. Four pillars. Dr. Hernandez is going to walk us through each one of them. And first up, recognition justice. In other words, just acknowledging that we have a problem. And in some ways, energy insecurity is best reflected um, in the pillar around recognition justice. Like it recognizes that people have a problem in meeting their utility um, needs uh, at home. After all, you can't really fix a problem until you acknowledge that it exists. After recognition justice, that's what Dr. Hernandez calls procedural justice. Procedural being literally about representation um, in the procedures, um, you know, like the regulatory process, how rates are determined, like um, how energy is um, you provided and, and who gets to uh, not only benefit from that, uh, but also um, to kind of oversee it. In other words, who makes the rules and how the rules are set. And as a result, who benefits and who gets the short end of the stick? which brings us to distributional justice. Then there's the other piece around um, around distribution, um, so the, the kind of fair distribution of benefits and burdens. Uh, and we know um, just historically that communities of color, um, especially in the U.S. and low-income communities, um, have more distributional burden. And one example is like the siting of power plants. They tend to be in lower income neighborhoods and in, in neighborhoods that are comprised primarily of people of color um, and some, and oftentimes kind of an exploitation of these communities. Which brings us to the last of the four pillars, restorative justice. And then on the more hopeful side, there's the kind of idea around restorative justice, like the idea that there are some things that can happen uh, with respect to energy that can make um, that can help communities heal, that can make them whole, that can really, you know, identify uh, the real possibilities of energy um, as kind of a workforce and kind of anti-poverty and pro-wealth um, opportunity, as well as uh, opportunities for health and, and general well-being. 
Energy justice is essential to helping us figure out how to tackle energy insecurity while also decarbonizing buildings. What are the biggest equity questions that we need to keep in mind as we think about decarbonizing buildings, in particular the ones that we live in, our homes, so houses, apartments, trailers, etc.? So to me, that's like such a central question, right? Because the opportunity to decarbonize and to focus on the residential housing sector um, is without question one of the most important intervention opportunities that we have before us. Um, But what happens when people can't afford um, the uh, kind of retrofits that are necessary to improve performance? What happens when... um, People are at risk of being displaced as a result of the capital improvements that are being done by someone else. And those are, so when you ask me what should be done, I think part of it is about unlocking financial resources uh, to make it so that homes, um, that people that live in buildings and in homes uh, that can't otherwise um, comfortably afford those retrofits, have access to the financial capital, and also to the reliable workforce and the trustworthy kind of, um, you know, like companies or or agencies that are able to do the work. So this is especially true for renters. Like when a building has gone undergone significant capital improvements, yep. there should be the corresponding protections uh, that allow for people to stay without there being a huge financial burden uh, that's associated with it. Um, and I guess that still connects especially to the question of affordability and, and access to capital, um, especially for buildings um, where where lower-income people live. So when we think about decarbonizing buildings and we think about both energy and security, but also energy justice, and we think about those at the same time, are there any major policies or decisions that have been made or that could be made that could help us to do both of these things, that to consider both insecurity and justice at the same time? So, I mean, I guess uh, the most ambitious um, example of this is probably in Justice 40. Uh, There's a mandate that 40% of investments in the clean energy economy be directed to disadvantaged communities. And so kind of being very intentional about ensuring that these um, uh, populations and communities um, are prioritized is is a step in the right direction. Um, that opens up the possibility um, that communities and populations that like are defined um, as disadvantaged um, get access to clean energy. It does not ensure affordability, and so. It doesn't fully address the concerns around economic challenges. Um, and so that, to me, is really the way to address that is about a more comprehensive policy um, approach um, that, you know, surely upgrading um, homes and buildings um, and ensuring that people have access to renewable energy, solar, rooftop solar, et cetera, is certainly a part of the mix. 
Um, but it also has to be connected to what's happening uh, in terms of the regulatory process at the state level. Like, how are rates determined? Um, are there opportunities for um, people to pay what they can afford from an energy perspective? Uh, um, there's um, a policy called the Percent Income Payment Plan. Um, and that's about like uh, ensuring that energy burden is capped um, at 6%, meaning that what people pay toward energy um, is at or below 6% of their household income. Uh, and it's actually approaches, more comprehensive approaches that kind of join together these kind of multiple layers of investment and protection that are really, you know, that get us to the point where we can um, really see uh, energy insecurity and energy justice kind of happening at once. So first, we have to ensure that disadvantaged and energy insecure communities have access to renewable energy by specifically investing in those communities, like with the Justice 40 program that Dr. Hernandez mentioned. And then we have to make that energy affordable. There are some programs like this out there that already exist, like the Low Income Home Energy Assistance Program, or LIHEAP, which gives cash grants to low-income households to help them pay their energy bills. LIHEAP got this $5.4 billion boost during the pandemic from the CARES Act to help families pay their utility bills. And there's also the Weatherization Assistance Program, which helps low-income households to increase the energy efficiency of their homes. But a big problem for energy assistance programs is that they're under-enrolled. Like Dr. Hernandez says, I think one of the biggest problems in, in the energy assistance space is under-enrollment. That's true for um, like bill assistance through LIHEAP. It's especially true when it comes to um, the Weatherization Assistance Program, WAP, um, which is not the Cardi B version. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I love that you just said that. That makes me so happy. <laughs> I'm not the only one thinking it. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I wish, I wish weatherization was as sexy as that, but it just, you know, it isn't. I yeah. think that maybe that's why it's under enrolled. So maybe these programs get a boost if Cardi B would write them an anthem. But Dr. Hernandez says that there are some more basic reasons why people can't get access to them. Under enrollment in these programs also has to do with kind of a bureaucratic, um, a bureaucratic and, and administrative burdens, right? Like the fact that there's so much paperwork attached to uh, applying that if you're a renter and you want to weatherize your home, you have to usually get your um, landlord to be on board. There are many reasons why they wouldn't want government intervention. So it's a complicated mix of uh, of, of issues that make it so that people aren't necessarily accessing programs that they should otherwise, um, that that they are otherwise entitled to. Um, so if you had a magic wand and you think about all these challenges and all the opportunities are out there as we move to net zero around equity and insecurity, justice, all these things, what would be kind of the top three things you'd do to help us actually accelerate progress in a way that factors all of these things in? So if I had a magic wand and I could choose kind of three things to do, um, I think the first thing is definitely to find ways um, to kind of provide um, opportunities for buildings and and homes to be kind of better performing from an energy efficiency perspective. I, I think 
I mean, if you had to, like, if I had to kind of really tell you what I think is at the root of this, of course, um, it's, you know, it's poverty and I'll get to that, you know, with my other, uh, wish. Um, but, but I think one of the first things is really just improving the built environment, uh, and, and improving where people live. I think the other thing is to give more income support. So, um, you know, one of the things that we have found in our research is that when people have access to more food related aid, um, more sources of income supports, they're much more likely to be energy secure and vice versa. When people have access to energy assistance, they're also more likely to um, be food secure and housing secure and all those things. And so we want secure households. There's an overemphasis on resilience um, and resilient households. But when you have a secure household to begin with, they can be resilient. And increasing energy security, along with decarbonizing the economy, that's what's going to help us prevent people from dying in future heat waves. And hopefully, with the right policies in place, we can do both at the same time. Because as the climate heats up, there will be more deadly heat waves. And the truth is that a lot of the deaths in heat waves are preventable. It's a matter of making sure that everyone has access to enough affordable, clean energy to switch that AC on. And that's our show. Next up on The Big Switch, we're talking about Walmart, sports stadiums, hospitals, and office high-rises, commercial buildings. The Big Switch is produced by Columbia University's Center on Global Energy Policy in partnership with PostScript Media. This episode was produced by Daniel Waldorf and Alexandria Herr. Story editing by Ann Bailey. Mixing and scoring by Sean Marquand and Greg Vilfrank. Theme song by Sean Marquand. Special thanks to our Columbia team, Kirsten Smith, Q. Lee, Liz Smith, and Natalie Volk. Our managing producer is Cecily Meza-Martinez, and our executive editor is Stephen Lacey. I'm Dr. Melissa Lott, and this is The Big Switch. 